Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We have a whole lot of news to share with you this week. Peter, why don't you start us off? I will. And news from the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Not good news. Members of their gorilla troop are testing positive for COVID-19. It was observed that two of them were coughing and seemed congested. And then workers started testing fecal samples and found that they were positive for the virus. So the release states they believe at least two of the gorillas are affected, maybe more. You know, they're in very close contact. The troop remains quarantined together and are eating and drinking, it says. We are hopeful for a full recovery. Well, of course. It's suspected that the gorillas got infected from an asymptomatic employee. The employees there do maintain proper safety protocols, but, you know, it's bound to happen. Right, Lori? You know, it's been argued in the past that the virus can't be transmitted between animals and humans, but I guess in this case it is, right? Or it was. I wonder if this is the first known interspecies transmission. Yes, I was unable to determine that, but they state for almost one year, our team members have been working tirelessly with the utmost determination to protect each other and the wildlife wildlife in our care from this highly contagious virus, the safety of our staff, and the wildlife in our care remains our number one priority. The zoo has been closed for uh, quite a while, and who knows when it's going to open. Anyway, hopefully these gorillas will have a mild uh, case and move on. When the zoo opens up, I wonder if that's going to be a major concern, where people are going to come in. They're not only going to have the risk of being exposed by other people, but now by the captive animals. Oh, good point. We'll see. It's yeah. going to get complicated. Yeah. Well, Lori, there is this company in Indiana called Midwestern Pet Foods, and they have a real big problem on their hand, along with a bunch of pet owners whose dogs died following (gasps) ingestion of their food. Oh, no. In December, the company recalled some of its sport mix products after the death of 28 dogs, and now Midwestern increased the product recall to include, and I'll just name these, sport mix Pro Pack Originals, Splash, Sports Trail, and None Better Dry Dog Food and Cat Food products. So if you have any of those, uh, please stop giving them to your pets and check the dates and look at their website. Other dogs have been made ill, at least another 80 dogs. So, uh, And you know, aflatoxin is that uh, mold-based toxin. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So not China, Lori. This is a domestic uh, maker. Surprising. Yeah. And do the owners of the dogs have any recourse? Yeah, good question. Probably very little, but oh my God. let's explore that. Oh. The uh, county shelter in Broward, Florida, they need to shut down for about six months, and that's just about to start, because they need to engage in a $760,000 Repair and what to do with the dogs and cats that are there is really the issue. As of Monday, the shelter had 37 cats and 83 dogs, and they're trying to do these noisy renovations, which involve the air ducts and the airflow system without disturbing and freaking out the dogs and cats. So they're trying to get these dogs and cats adopted or put out to fosters. Evidently, the design of this ventilation system was quite faulty, and they had the intake equipment right next to the output equipment and so it was just not cleansing the air and there was a poor air quality and horrible smell 
So it may be terrifying to the animals. They're going to bite and bark and freak out, according to uh, one observer. And hopefully they'll be able to clear out this uh, shelter as they start this renovation. Hmm. You would think they'd be able to avoid this air quality issue. It was definitely an avoidable problem. (laughs) Yes. In Corby, England, an iguana, a pet iguana, makes a very fortuitous escape. There was a fire in this iguana's house. Evidently, ironically, it was caused by the very iguana's warming pad, a faulty reptile heated mat in the living room, caught fire. The fire department was called in, and as one of the firefighters was leaving the burning house, the iguana jumps onto his helmet and uh, just rides out. Smart so iguana. A very smart iguana, smarter Good than the him. iguana's owner, that's wow. for sure. So then there's this great photo of a masked with the oxygen and helmet firefighter with the iguana on his head. Look at that. Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, it's really an, an amazing picture. So uh, lucky for the iguana and uh, no other no other injuries. An unusual thing uh, happens in Japan. They've got these swarms of millipedes. I know you like millipedes. They're very cute and fuzzy and cuddly. Uh, <laughs> cuddly. I, they freak me out a, a little bit too. Even, yes. even when I'm like, a, you know, a million times larger than a millipede, I always jump back. Anyway, uh, back in the early 20th century, uh, Japanese engineers, they uh, installed train lines in remote areas of the country, mountainous areas. And then in 1920, they were surprised to find these sort of mounds of these white millipedes, and they were just completely cover the tracks and make passage of the trains impossible for a short amount of time. And then it sort of subsided, and then they can go on. So hundreds of thousands of millipedes yeah. would just cover the track? Yeah. So that stopped. And then like a decade later, it happened again. <gasps> and then once again. And then they started realizing that this was like an eight-year cycle of these uh, millipedes and their periodicity of evidently their life cycle. Well, researchers have finally determined that indeed the juveniles do take eight years to mature going from their wherever they start until they're mature and then they sort of get released all together and go do their thing. But what is it about the train tracks? They don't know why they are attracted to these train tracks, but evidently the train tracks... Maybe it's the warmth. I don't know, but they're taking over. They're taking over. Wow. Invasion of the millipedes. Invasion of the millipedes. I know. That's got to be really weird. (laughs) Yeah. Lori, have you ever heard of the woolly rhinoceros? Don't answer. I'm going to tell you about the woolly rhinoceros. This is a now extinct from the Pleistocene era, that's 2 million to 10,000 years ago at the last ice age. These were, you know, prehistoric rhinoceri, and they are depicted actually in cave paintings, both in Europe and Asia. These paintings are really fascinating if you want to dip into that. Anyway, these woolly rhinoceroses, they were covered with long, thick hair so they could survive the very cold, harsh uh, climate. And, uh, a study of their DNA, they were able to recover 40 to 70,000 year old DNA samples. Its closest living relative is the Sumatran rhinoceros. These were quite large, as you might imagine, up to 6,000 pounds a piece and taller than six foot tall at their shoulders. They were massive and really had no natural enemies. 
They had two horns, a long one in front and a short one in back, and they fed on grasses. Well, why are we talking about them right now? That's because a very well-preserved juvenile woolly rhino was just recovered from Siberia's melting tundra. And this young rhino was thought to be maybe three or four years old. They don't know the gender, but incredibly, there are patches of hair and a lot of the soft tissues are still evident, uh, plus the excreta that goes along with the intestines. So researchers are gonna be able to send that off for analysis and understand their genetic makeup. This particular specimen may be the most intact ever discovered anywhere in the world. Wow. So a little, wow. little history. Like I said, those cave drawings in, in France and elsewhere, they're just so fascinating to look at. There's great websites uh, showing hunters and the animals. It's really interesting. So is it rhinoceri yeah. or rhinoceroses? I, I, I'm going to choose both. I okay. look like I did. Yeah. Hippopotami or hippopotamuses? <laughs> mm. Okay, that's all for now. Wait, I want to tell you about this bridge built near Salt Lake City. Peter, I think you've seen it. In 2018, there was this bridge. It was built by the Utah Division of Wildlife. And the bridge is a wildlife overpass. And it was created to allow animals a safe place to cross the highway, which is six lanes of traffic and avoid vehicle collisions on the interstate. Cameras are placed along the bridge's guardrail and video footage posted by the division showcases an assortment of animals, including deers, bears, squirrels, moose, porcupines, all these animals crossing the bridge over the highway. There's another segment you can see a bobcat who's carrying a small mammal in its mouth while walking across the bridge at night. And another big cat, like a bobcat, scratching and stretching on one of the logs. Have you seen this video? Like a log is along the path. To yeah, exactly. Natural. Yeah. He's, no, I haven't seen it, but I've seen, I saw a picture. It's, it's amazing. You search Utah Canyon Wildlife Overpass mm -hmm. and the videos on Facebook as well. It's really cool. The crossing, which reportedly cost $5 million, is 50 feet wide and 320 feet long, and it's covered with dirt, rocks, and boulders to make the surroundings more recognizable to wildlife, which encourages them to use it. I read that in the two years before the overpass was built, Utah Department of Transportation recorded 106 collisions mm. between vehicles and animals which killed 98 deer, three moose, two raccoons, two elk, and one cougar. Hmm. Utah plans to conduct a full analysis of how the bridge has improved the safety for our wildlife and people after it's been open for three to five years. So we have a couple more years to go, and then they'll do a full analysis. Utah's Division of Wildlife Resources has repeatedly emphasized that the overpass is for animals only. Unfortunately, the cameras on the guardrails are showing people uh, walking and skiing across uh, the overpass. Uh, I know, stupid people. I didn't know it was going to go there. That's horrible. Yeah. Please keep off the overpass. Please. Said by Utah's Division of Wildlife Resources, which they also note in the new video caption, which you could see on Facebook. Please keep off the overpass. The point of the overpass, after all, is to keep people and wildlife at a safe distance. Mm. Okay, mostly good story. I know people always ruin the story, don't they? <laughs> okay, thanks, Lori. More with animals today after this break. Stick around. Hi, this is Dr. Lori, and today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. 
Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet, which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. According to the Centers for Disease Control, an estimated 70% of adults are obese or overweight, and the statistics are almost as bad for our pets. The Association for Pet Obesity Prevention reports that according to its 2018 data, a staggering 56% of dogs and 60% of cats in the United States are overweight or obese. Obesity remains one of the few diseases that pet owners can influence, but it takes a while many months, and it takes commitment and vigilance. The Morse Animal Foundation laid out some nice strategies to improve weight loss success in our pets. Switching a pet to a prescription diet that promotes weight loss remains one of the best and easiest ways to help a pet lose weight. Although many commercial foods are advertised as weight reduction or light diets, these products often are not as effective as prescription diets in promoting weight loss. And of course, you know the prescription diets require a veterinarian's recommendation. Other weight loss strategies include giving pets plenty of exercise and social stimulation, very important, using food puzzles for feeding. This promotes slow consumption of the food while providing stimulation. We use slow feeding systems when we feed our dogs their meals, right, Peter? Partially effective. Thoughtful timing of spay and neutering can also help with weight control. Using a consistent measuring device, measuring cup or measuring scale to determine portions, avoiding high calorie, especially high fat treats, even in small amounts. Enlisting the support of the entire veterinary care team, avoiding assigning blame and engaging everyone in the family to help. And being patient, weight loss is hard. It's important to talk to your veterinarian before starting any weight loss and exercise program for your pet. Your veterinarian can help guide and program and provide resources to ensure success. Thank you, Morris Animal Foundation, for that. And if you want to listen to my interview with veterinarian Doug Coons about pet obesity, simply go to animalstodayradio.com and type in the search box, Pet Obesity. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about the American bison. These large, majestic animals, along with the bald eagle, serve as an official symbol of the United States. In prehistoric times, millions of bison roamed the continent along with large cats and woolly mammoths. However, by the late 1800s, as the U.S. inhabitants moved west, the bison population was nearly wiped out. This is because the settlers slaughtered bison for sport and their hides, as well as to clear the plains for livestock. Native Americans used bison for everything from food and clothing to shelter and tools. 
According to the National Wildlife Federation, it's estimated that before the expansion west, between 30 million and 60 million bison roam the area, from Canada to northern Mexico and from the plains to the eastern forests. However, by 1890, less than 1,000 bison remained. Thanks to a few private individuals, in conjunction with tribes, states, and the Department of the Interior, bison were saved from extinction. Bison are North America's largest native land animals. A full-grown male, a bull, can weigh up to 2,000 pounds and reach a height of 6 feet tall. A fully-grown female, a cow, can weigh as much as 1,000 pounds and stand 4 to 5 feet tall. Bison calves weigh anywhere between 30 and 70 pounds at birth. The average lifespan of the bison is approximately 20 years. Sometimes confused with each other, bison are completely different from buffalo, although there may be some resemblance. Buffalo originate in Africa and Asia, have large sets of horns, and lack the massive shoulder hump characteristic of bison. The bison is a fascinating animal that has a long history in the United States. In fact, this large mammal helped to create habitats on the Great Plains for a variety of species, including birds and many plant species. This is because as bison forage, they aerate the soil with their hooves. This aids in plant growth and disperses native seeds, all of which help to maintain a healthy and balanced ecosystem. Now, that large hump on a bison's back, it's a powerful muscular structure supported by a large vertebrae, which can be up to two feet long. These powerful muscles permit the animal to forcibly move its head side to side. So in deep snow, a path can be made. It's like a built-in snowplow. Here's another intriguing bison fact. It's possible to tell the mood of a bison by its tail. If its tail is hanging down and moving from side to side in a natural motion, this generally means the animal is calm. However, if the bison's tail is standing straight up, you don't want to be anywhere in its path, as this often indicates it's ready to charge. And despite their massive size, these animals can run at speeds of 40 miles per hour. They're also extremely agile and can jump up to six feet high, as well as spin around quickly. This has served them well in fighting off predators. Of course, their sheer size alone presents a strong deterrent. In the bison behavior known as wallowing, they roll around in the dirt to drive away flies and help shed fur. Male bison also wallow during mating season to leave behind their scent and display their strength. Speaking of mating, the females and males generally live in small, separate bands and come together in large herds in the summer, which is the mating season. Bison are grazers, and they eat grasses, herbs, shrubs, and twigs. They regurgitate their food and chew on it as cud before finally digesting it. Another interesting fact is that bison are nearsighted. To make up for it, they have excellent senses of smell and hearing. Yellowstone National Park is the only place in the United States where bison have continuously lived since prehistoric times. According to the National Park Service, as of July 2015, Yellowstone's bison population was estimated at 4,900, making it the largest bison population on public lands. The Yellowstone herd is one of the few that remains genetically free of cattle genes. In 1905, the American Bison Society was formed. By 1930, the society had enough bison to restore a free-ranging bison herd. Working with the Department of the Interior, they donated 14 bison to Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota.
More than 100 years later, the bison from Wind Cave helped to reestablish other herds across the United States. On May 9, 2016, President Obama signed the National Bison Legacy Act into law, officially making the American bison the national mammal of the United States. And that was today's Animals Today Minute. You're listening to Animals Today with Dr. Lori Kirshner, your home for serious talk about animals. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Last week, the U.S. Department of Transportation announced that under a new rule, which goes into effect in January, they will no longer consider emotional support animals as service animals. Essentially, airlines are banning emotional support animals from planes. And the new rule also will allow only dogs to serve as service animals. This allows airlines to limit the types of animals that fly for free. Now, just to remind you the difference between an emotional support animal and a service animal, under Title II and Title III of the American Disabilities Act, a service animal means any dog that is individually trained to do work or perform tasks for the benefit of an individual with a disability, including a physical, sensory, psychiatric, intellectual, or other mental disability. So a service animal helps a person who's blind to navigate, or assists an individual during a seizure, or assists a person with balance and stability issues or mobility disabilities. Emotional support animals, unlike service animals, do not have special training to perform tasks that assist people with disabilities. Emotional support animals provide companionship. They relieve loneliness and sometimes help with depression or anxiety and certain phobias. And emotional support animals are not limited to dogs. And I understand. I have dogs and cats, and they provide an incredible amount of emotional support for me. My dogs ease my anxiety. They comfort me when I'm down or sad. They lift my spirits. I sleep better when my animals are next to me. So I get it. I know what our companion animals can do for us, for our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. And I'm scared of flying. 
I really do hate to fly. Bringing one of my dogs or cats along on the plane to comfort me would definitely ease my anxiety, and I would love to do that. And it's tempting, but I can see how travelers might take advantage of and abuse this policy. Just put a vest on your dog or other animal, or get your doctor to write a note stating you need to fly with your animal for emotional support, and that's it. It's pretty easy to get away with. And then it's not just dogs and cats. People can claim their pig or miniature horse or peacock or hedgehog or whatever to be their emotional support animal. So you can see how it gets out of hand. In addition, there are people who claim their pet is an emotional support animal to avoid the $150 or $175 one-way pet fee, which gets waived with an emotional support animal. So listen to this. Airlines for America and Airline Trade Association estimate that the number of passengers flying with emotional support animals in 2018 increased by 14% following a 60% increase the year before. This group states that the rise has also accompanied a sharp increase in incidents caused by the animals from biting to defecation. Airlines for America president and CEO Nicholas Calio said, the Department of Transportation's final rule will protect the traveling public and airline crew members from untrained animals in the cabin, as well as improve air travel accessibility for passengers with disabilities that travel with trained service dogs. So, new rule, only dogs can fly for free as service animals only. No emotional support animals. So I like it. I think this was an easily abused policy. And listen, passengers without an emotional support animal do have rights too. And if you're on a five-hour flight across the country, you might not be thrilled to sit next to someone's emotional support pig or peacock or whatever. So I think it's a good rule. I think it needed to be done. And no doubt, I think the airlines also did this for economic reasons, because it's been estimated that with this ban of emotional support animals in place, the airlines will gain up to $59.6 million a year in pet fees. However, I will say that I do fear that now more and more people will check their emotional support animal or their pet into the cargo hold, which is extremely dangerous and risky. We've reported on horror stories about people's beloved pets and what happened to them when they checked their animals in like a piece of luggage, and these animals are put with the cargo. Animals get lost or misplaced or stolen. Can you imagine? We've reported on cases in which the animal freezes to death or overheats and dies from dehydration. So my advice, without sounding like I'm minimizing the value of having an emotional support animal and what our animals do for our overall well-being, I mean, I can barely stand being away from my dogs and cats for one day. But my advice is when you travel by plane, leave your animals at home and perhaps pick up breathing or meditation practices. And listen, I hate flying. I'm one of those white knuckle flyers. I have my Valium if I need it. I have a cocktail on board if I need it. Not at the same time as the Valium, of course. But I'm telling you, never allow your pet to be checked in and stored with the cargo. Extremely risky and dangerous for your pet. And I want to say one more thing about this new Department of Transportation rule. The AP reports that the Transportation Department stood by an earlier decision to prohibit airlines from banning entire dog breeds. So you should know that Delta Airlines banned pit bull type dogs back in 2018 
whether they were service animals or emotional support animals. So no pit bull type dogs allowed on Delta. The transportation department prohibits airlines from doing this. By the way, this ban on pit bull type dogs by Delta Airlines was not only criticized by animal advocates and dog lovers, but by disability advocates. These are service dogs for disabled individuals. So the Department of Transportation prohibits airlines from banning a given breed of dog. And Delta is giving no indication of backing down. In a statement, a Delta spokeswoman said the airline is reviewing the new rule, but, quote, at this time, there are no changes to Delta's current service and support animal policies. So this is breed discrimination and shame on Delta. And we can get into the whole discussion about breed discrimination and how it's very difficult to identify what kind of dog you really have just by looking at the dog's appearance. That's called visual breed identification. And it's inaccurate. More times than not, your guess at what kind of breed a dog is by just looking at it because he might have a certain trait that reminds you of what a particular breed looks like. And you'll likely be proven wrong by DNA analysis. So that's one of the many problems with these breed discrimination rules and laws. The federal government ruled that Delta's ban on pit bull type dogs is illegal. I mean, airline employees have a right to bar any dog or any animal they consider a safety threat at the time, no matter the breed. But it's illegal for them to ban an entire kind of dog. And there's been cases where well-mannered, calm, obedient service dogs and their owners were kicked off the plane, Delta plane, because the dog was a pit bull type dog. This is crazy. Delta's response is, we are looking after, quote, the safety of the staff and customers. Even though the Department of Transportation clearly states, quote, Limiting a service animal based exclusively on its breed is not allowed under the department's Air Carrier Access Act regulation. And they go on. If you are ever turned away from a flight due to a service dog's breed, you are asked to file a disability complaint with the U.S. Department of Transportation. We've had guests on Animals Today who specifically adopt out and train shelter dogs that have been labeled as pit bulls to be service dogs for people with disabilities. Regina Lizick is one of these individuals. She commented on this Delta ban. She states, first and foremost, it's about people. Delta is discriminating against people. When Delta or anyone puts out a regulation like this that dictates what kind of dog can be a service dog, they are reducing access for someone with a disability. The president and CEO of ASPCA also responds to Delta Airlines' ban on pit bull policy. He states, Delta Airlines policy to ban pit bull type dogs as comfort or service animals does not achieve its stated public safety aim and spreads false and life-threatening stereotypes. Every dog is unique, even dogs within the same breed, and their behavior is influenced by many factors, including socialization, developmental experiences, training, environment, and genetics. In fact, pit bull type dogs have long been popular family pets, noted for their affection and loyalty. So there you go. If you're blind or have a disability and your service dog whom you rely on is a pit bull-like dog, too bad for you. You will not be allowed on Delta Airlines. Today's Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. 
The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adult stands six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal, but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rheas. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. An adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters. And they have a special gland located above their nasal passages, which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. More with Animals Today right after the break. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. talk about famous dogs in Hollywood history. Peter, who would you say is not only one of the most famous canine movie stars in history, but the most famous and recognized German Shepherd dog of all time? Oh, the German Shepherd part helps. That's Rin Tin Tin, right? That's right. During his life, Rin Tin Tin appeared in 27 Hollywood films, including one called The Man from Hell's River, that was in 1922, Frozen River in 1929, and The Lightning Warrior in 1931. Now, you're going to find Rin Tin Tin's personal story very interesting. He was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier, Lee Duncan, who nicknamed him Rinty. 
Apparently, he was the only one who ended up surviving from a bombed-out dog kennel in France during the war. Now, according to a rumor, Rin Tin Tin received more votes in the first year of the Oscars than any other actor. That's funny. But the Academy gave the award to a human to avoid being embarrassed. Warner Brothers referred to Rin Tin Tin as the mortgage lifter and fully understood their success was because of this German Shepherd dog. And this dog was one of the reasons why German Shepherds became so popular as family pets in the United States at that time. Now, after Rin Tin Tin died in 1932, many dogs after him went on to take Rin Tin Tin's name and try to continue his legacy in films, television, and books. So the Rin Tin Tin used for the 1950s television series, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, was not the original Rin Tin Tin. Another iconic Hollywood canine, you know Toto in The Wizard of Oz, but I bet you don't know Toto's real name. No, I don't. Terry. Terry. Terry was a Karen Terrier. She was born in the midst of the Great Depression. Although Wizard of Oz, which was in 1939, was Terry's most famous role, she actually starred in 16 different movies in her lifetime. She also appeared alongside Shirley Temple in Bright Eyes as the character named Rags. That was in 1934, which was considered her first major film appearance. Reportedly, Terry did all her own stunts and almost lost her life during the filming of The Wizard of Oz. And this story, one of the winky guards, remember them? They're the Wicked Witch of the West's foot soldiers from The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I remember. One of the winky guards accidentally stepped on Toto's foot, breaking it. Toto spent two weeks recuperating at Judy Garland's residence. Garland developed a very close attachment to Toto and wanted to adopt Toto. But the owner and trainer of Toto, Carl Spitz, refused to give her to Judy Garland. Terry, Toto, died at age 11 in Hollywood in 1945 and was buried at Spitz's ranch in Studio City, Los Angeles. The grave was destroyed during the construction of the Ventura Freeway in 1958. But in 2011, a memorial was created for her at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Nice. Next, who's the most famous collie in Hollywood? That would be Lassie. Very good. A true American icon, right? You know Lassie's real name? Pal. Pal starred in seven different Lassie films and portrayed Lassie in the two pilot episodes of the television series before he had to retire in 1954. Pal was the first of many to portray Lassie and was father to the dogs that would continue to portray Lassie later in the television series. The Saturday Evening Post was quoted as saying that Pal had the most spectacular canine career in film history. Peter, you're old enough to remember the movie Benji. Uh, yeah, another little dog. Yep. He was a mixed breed terrier. Benji's real name was... Uh, Benjamin. Higgins. Higgins. Good guess. In 1960, animal trainer Frank Inn found the dog at the Burbank Animal Shelter as a puppy. In the movie, Benji is a stray dog looking for a home, and when two kids are kidnapped, Benji helps bring the children back to safety. Higgins' dog trainer considered this canine film star to be the smartest dog he had ever worked with because he was able to train Higgins to convey a multitude of emotions through facial expressions only. Higgins played in films during the 1960s and 70s, but most famous for his role in the movie Benji. And he played in six of the seven seasons of the TV sitcom Petticoat Junction. Remember that oh, one? That, now that's a connection I <laughs> never made. Petticoat Junction. He also had a guest appearance on the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. Oh, that's good. He's got the whole trifecta of that little genre there. That's <laughs> right? good. Boy, we're really aging ourselves. Do you remember watching those shows? Vaguely. It was a long time ago. I was alive, though. 
Green Acres. <laughs> yeah, I know Green Acres. <laughs> you are my wife. Goodbye, City Life. <laughs> That's funny. See, you're old enough to. <laughs> enough singing. But listen to this. When he played in the movie Benji, Higgins was 14 years old. Oh, boy. Higgins died at age 17 in 1975. A couple famous chihuahuas. Yeah, Taco Bell. Very good. What was his name? Gidget. Oh, yeah. Was an advertising figure and mascot for the Taco Bell restaurant chain from September 1997 to July 2000. Gidget also appeared on a commercial for Geico. Uh, before the gecko, maybe. That's right. The other famous chihuahua, you want to guess? Oh, no. You Help. know this one. I do. Uh, there's a chihuahua. Go a ahead. A chihuahua named Bruiser. Oh, yeah. Who from... played Elwood's faithful companion in the Legally Blonde movies. Yeah, I remember Bruiser. Bruiser's real name was Mooney. <laughs> Elwood dressed Bruiser up in pink. Do you think Bruiser minded that? Bruiser could pull it off. By the way, going back to Gidget, Gidget played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. Wow, the Taco Bell Gidget? What? Yeah, oh. played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. I forgot there were multiple uh, chihuahuas <laughs> in Legally Blonde. These two chihuahuas, Mooney and Gidget, lived together. Mooney died March 2016 in Los Angeles at the age of 18. Gidget was euthanized at the age of 15 after suffering from a stroke at her owner's home. You know, it's better to have animals and cartoons as uh, spokes figures these days. I agree. Because, you know, the people, they tend to get in trouble. They get arrested. There's scandals. Your whole campaign is ruined. So you want to invent something or just get a, get a dog. That's a great point. How about the famous pit bull with the circle around one eye? Yep. PD from PD. Our, our gang, Blue and Rascals. Very good. That was during the 1930s. Now, the original PD, his name was Pal the Wonder Dog and was an American Pitbull Terrier. And he had a natural ring almost completely around the right eye, and dye was used to complete the circle. Now, on Wikipedia, you can see a great famous picture of the dog, Petey the pup, sitting in between two of the characters. One was the boy who played Stymie and the other boy, Wheezy. Do you remember those characters? Yes. <laughs> this was in the R Gang Comedy School's Out, and the picture was dated 1930. When Pal, the Wonder Dog, died, his son named Pete took over the role. Producers decided to continue the tradition of drawing on the entire circle, a custom that would continue in every few future remake of The Little Rascals. Remember Old Yeller? Not so much. Tell me about Old Yeller. Oh, I can't believe you don't remember Old Yeller. Spike was his name. He was a yellow lab mix and best known first performance as Old Yeller in the 1957 Disney film Old Yeller. Spike was obtained as a puppy from the Van Nuys Animal Shelter in California. The movie Old Yeller tells the story of a stray dog and a young boy who sees potential in him. Gradually, he learns the love of a family, and this dog is protecting them from all sorts of danger and risking his life for them time after time. Do you know how Old Yeller died in the movie? Yeah, I knew there was a sad part of Oh, my God. It's the saddest <laughs> scene in film history. <laughs> Old Yeller defends the family against their rabbit wolf. Oh. And during the fight, Old Yeller's bitten and injured by the wolf. And because of Old Yeller's exposure to rabies, the older son is forced to shoot and I, kill Old, old Yeller. Uh, you don't remember that scene? I, I can't believe my parents allowed me to watch well, that movie. My parents loved me. They did not allow me to see it. Well, maybe that's why I turned out the way I am. I'm going to stop here because thinking about what happened to Old Yeller is making me too sad. Okay, Lori. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 